We have, my wife and I, we've got five kids. I say we, she's got five kids, and I'm along for the ride. And uh, all of our kids are in school, and one of the things that happens is, is as soon as school starts on whatever day it happens to be, and I think this is probably true for the teachers, right, Mr. Herring, where as soon as school starts, they know when the first day off is going to be, right? And so I think there's one in September, I think there's one in October, but the one I remember is Veterans Day in November. They, they know when that day is coming. And then they know when Christmas break is coming. They know it, it's coming down the line. It's on the horizon. And they're looking forward to Christmas break. And then you get into the new year. And they have these weird days where they're kind of snow makeup days. And so you're praying there's no snow. Because if there's snow, uh, then, you don't, then you have to go to school on those days. And so then you're getting to, to spring break. And your kids are just looking forward to it. They're excited. Spring break. We get to not go to school and my kids just got out of spring break. They went back to school. They're like, Dad, we have 10 weeks of school left. 10 weeks, two and a half months. And there's only one extra day off for the rest of the year. Memorial Day. I mean, isn't it true that we love to find those, those days off? We get excited about them. Uh, it may be a, a holiday. It may be just a day off. But it's kind of like a, a break from the routine. A day that just kind of is different and set apart from other days. And it's not just kids i mean let's be honest as adults like we like those days as well right like for me like how many of you how many of you are like me do you have a birthday month like like i don't have a birthday day i've got a month and it, it, october now the problem is then i had a daughter and she was born in my month and that kind of takes away some of my luster then i have this niece who was actually born on my birthday and i share my birthday with her so now i get like a, a quarter of a day a quarter of a day is my birthday it used to be a birthday month, but we, we do. We look forward to these holidays. Uh, we like the special days. It's kind of like a, a break from the monotony. It's kind of, you get these days, and they're kind of like encouragement for the daily grind of just what your life looks like. These uh, holidays, if you ever notice the word holiday, it looks like a uh, holy day. And the idea of a holiday is that this is a day that is set apart this is a day that is different, and it is set apart to do something different than what you normally do. And we're going to see today that holidays and days of celebration are actually a spiritual thing. So we're, we've been studying the book of Esther for the last two months, and now we are, today, we're going to end the book of Esther. We're going to finish the book of Esther, and we're going to see the Jews in the book of Esther celebrate this new national holiday, this new national celebration called the Feast of Purim. And this is a holiday that is still celebrated to this day. In fact, the Jews celebrate it on March 20 and 21st of this year. This is still a day uh, that they celebrate. This was a day that they would celebrate and remember. They would re remember what God has done for them. That they would rejoice in what God has done for them. And as we look at everything we've learned in the book of Esther, man, it's a pretty fitting end, is it not? If you notice in verse 1, I want you to look back at verse 1, because in verse 1 it talked about in the 12th month, uh, in the month of Adar, on the 13th day. Now this was a day that these Jews would have had circled on their calendar. Like when they would have logged onto Facebook, it would have been one of those holidays that pops up to say, this is the day that the Jews are supposed to be annihilated. If you remember, this is a date all the way from back in chapter 3, when the evil Haman, he's trying to create a plan to destroy the Jews, and he's casting those dice. He's casting the lots, trying to pick a day in the future for when the Jews are going to be annihilated. And it pointed to this day, uh, all the way, all this time ago. It had arrived. 
And here, what we're going to find is we're going to find that God is greater than Satan every day. That here, Satan tried to use Haman to destroy God's people, and God gets the upper hand. And isn't that true of the way that God works? I mean, if we look in our life, and some days we begin to wonder. Some days when we look around what's happening around us, we read the news, we watch the news, we read the newspaper, uh, we look at the situations in our life, we kind of wonder, God, God, are you really stronger than what's going on in my life? Are you, are you greater than this? And man, the absolute answer is, is yes, he is. I mean, despite the fact that you turn on the news, uh, think, about, think about the little uh, 13-year-old boy that was murdered down in Toppenish this, this past week. I mean, terrible situation. Think about, you, you turn on the news and there's all these bickering politicians. Like, there's no one working together. They're just calling each other names and it's so discouraging. You read about terrorism all over. Uh, read about talking to a, a, a pastor who spent some time in Egypt and how there is a, a pastor in Egypt that he has to be escorted by a military escort to get to church because of the threats against his life for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, our world is broken. And then you start looking at our own personal lives, and we've got all these issues. We've got relational tension. We've got marriage problems. We've got, we've got finances. We've got, we've got bills coming in that we can't figure out how to get paid. We've got, we've got jobs that have to be figured out. We've got mental health issues. And if we look at the book of Esther, Esther is a testament to us that God is greater than anything this world can throw at us. That despite Satan's attempt to destroy us, to destroy the people of God, God is still greater and God is still sovereign. And so on that day, on that specific day that the Jews are supposed to be annihilated, it says, and I want you to hear this, that the Jews, the enemies of the Jews, they hoped to gain mastery over them. I want you to circle that term, mastery. That the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, but the reverse occurred. You need to underline that. That is key. That the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. See, this idea is that the enemies of God's people, they hope to gain mastery. They hope to destroy them. But this is what God is. God is a God of amazing love. God is a God of amazing reversals. And he allows the reverse to happen. Listen, this is what God has done time and time again throughout this entire book of Esther. That what we expected to happen, God brought the reverse to happening, right? And so in chapter 6, Haman, he's plotting to kill Mordecai. And he goes and he wants to go and talk to the king. And he wants to say, hey, king, I want to kill Mordecai. But remember what king said? King said, hey, hey, Haman, um, what do you think I should do for someone I really like and I really want to honor? And Haman's thinking, well, of course you want to honor me. And so he says, well, you should give him your royal robes, and you should put him on your chariot, and you should pray to him around town and, and have your high officials say, this guy's awesome. And King's like, great, I love that idea. Go do that for your enemy, Mordecai. Oh, the great reversal. Remember, Haman, he built that 75-foot gallows. He built that pole 75 feet tall because he wants to hang Mordecai on it. And again, the great reversal. Where Mordecai's not hung on it, actually Haman is the one himself who's hung and impaled on that gallows. And here at the end of the book, on a single day, on the day that the enemies of God's people hope to gain mastery over them, again, there's this great reversal. Where instead of the enemies gaining mastery over God's people, it's God's people who gain mastery over them. Listen, I need you to hear this this morning. You need to hear this this morning. 
God can do more in a single day than you and I could ever accomplish in a lifetime. That God could do more in a single day, in a moment, than you and I could ever do in a lifetime. This is throughout, throughout the entire Bible. You see again and again and again people that are following after God. And in a moment, in a day, in an instant, God shows up and God changes everything forever. I mean, the greatest example of this would be the day that the Jewish leaders, they were celebrating. Look, we killed Jesus. Look, our problem is done. We crucified him. He can't mess with us anymore. He can't come and preach this gospel anymore. And on that single day, in a moment, the great reversal happened. And Jesus walked out of that grave conquering Satan and death and hell and sin, securing our salvation, securing our freedom. In a day, the great reversal occurred. You thought you killed Jesus? Look, he's walking out of the grave today, bringing us victory. Listen, do not miss the power of God in your life. Do not miss what God can do in a single day of your life. That cancer could be cured. The marriage could be healed the kids could return. The job could be secured. Your graduation could be accomplished. Your suffering could be alleviated. Do not lose hope in the power of God that in a moment, in a single day, if you follow him, if you trust him, if you obey him, God can do far more than you could ever imagine if you just keep leaning into him and following after him in his plans. So on the single day, this great reversal occurred. It says the Jews are gathered in all their city. They're prepared for, for, for war. And let's clarify, this isn't just a random war. These, these Jews aren't going out just randomly killing people. The edict says they can defend themselves. And so they're prepared to defend themselves against those who might attack them. Verse 3, I love this. It says even the government officials, all the government officials, they see through Haman's sinfulness and wickedness and they see man Mordecai seems like he's trying to follow after God and so it says all the government officials they are on the side of the Jews and so we're gonna see a lot of death in fact verse 6 says in the city of, of Susa that there was 500 people killed later in verse 16 we read that there was 75,000 people who are killed on this day think about that there's 75,000 people who sought to destroy the Jews on that single day. That's crazy. That is crazy. And if you look as it goes through, we read these names in verse 7 through 10. You hear about the ten sons of Haman. How the ten sons of Haman are also murdered. And this is something that you're going to find, uh, this is something you're going to find true throughout Scripture. And if you're a parent, I want you to listen to this. If you are a husband and a father, listen, you need to hear this. That the decisions you make, the decisions you make have implications for your families for generations to come. That the decisions you make, they impact your, your children, they impact your spouse, they impact your grandchildren, they impact generations to come. I mean, we've heard that saying, like father, like son, right? We've heard that saying, like father, like son. Haman is an evil man. Haman is a guy who doesn't repent before God. He doesn't submit and trust himself and say, God, I want to follow you. I want what you want in my life. And what happens to him is he dies a very public and shameful death. You think, well, his sons, they must have learned a lesson, right? No. 
his sons proceed forward with the same plan that their father had put into place. That there would be a day that the Jews would be annihilated. And as a result, these ten sons are also killed. Listen, let me just ask you, parents, let me ask you, fathers, what legacy are you leaving for your generations to come? I was thinking about this this past week. I uh, got to go and pray with Dan and Joy Fitzgerald on, on Monday. And last week in Dan and Joy, they got to go down to Vancouver where uh, a bunch of their family lives. And they got to meet their grandbaby, great-grandbaby. It's great-grandbaby Ben. Uh, ben was uh, a preemie baby and uh, finally got, was able to go home uh, to the, out of the hospital. He was there for about a month, month and a half. And uh, you know what I love hearing about Dan and Joy? When they talk about going back to see their family, you know, they've created a legacy. They have created a legacy. They've got eight kids. All of those eight kids love Jesus. That doesn't mean they're a perfect family. Not at all. But they love Jesus and they love each other. And when they gather together, man, I love hearing these stories because it's a beautiful thing. They can, they can, they can celebrate each other. They can encourage each other. They can, they can have honor amongst one another. And why is that? Because Dan and Joy chose to create a legacy. They chose, hey, when we have our kids, when we're making these decisions, we're not going to live for ourselves. We're not going to choose the easy life. We're not going to live in a way to make our life easy and to, to make ourselves great. They chose to, to live and have a godly legacy. And now, as they're in their age right now, they can see the fruits of that taking root. Of grandkids who are serving the Lord. Grandkids entering ministry. Great-grandkids being born. And what itty-bitty Ben got to do is they took him to church. He's been out of the hospital for days, and they took him to church. I recognize that there are some of us who don't come from great families. There are some of us in here that we have a family legacy that is pretty broken. There's drunkenness, there's, there's adultery, there's selfishness, there, there's foolishness, there's abuse. Listen, don't forget the fact that God specializes God specializes in great reversals. That God can take the most broken thing and turn it into something beautiful. And you need to decide today. You need to decide, what's your legacy going to be? Are you going to live for today? Are you going to live for yourself, for your pleasure, for your enjoyment, for your happiness? Or are you going to live for your future? Are you going to live to create a godly legacy? Because listen, how you answer that question, are you going to live for today or are you going to live for the future? How you answer that question is going to determine how you leave, live. How you answer that question is going to determine whether you're going to be faithful to your spouse or whether you're going to look outside the bounds of marriage. For pornography, for a fling, for a good time, for a side piece, for whatever you want to call it. How you answer that decision, are you going to live for today or for the future, will, will determine how you work, whether you're going to pursue the easy dollar or whether you're going to value hard work and teach hard work to the generations to come. How you answer that question, are you going to live for today or are you going to live for the future, will determine what you do when things get hard. When things get hard, do you turn to the bottle to comfort you or do you turn to Jesus? How you answer that question, are you going to live for yourself or are you going to live for your future, determines whether or not you are going to love and serve Jesus or whether you're going to love and serve yourself. 
And so here's the thing I love about God. Is that God can take broken people and change them and bring that amazing reversal where that broken person, that sinner, can love their spouse, can love their kids, can love their grandkids, can love their Jesus, and tell stories to their family about the grace of God to encourage their family to, to, to believe in God, to trust Him, to obey Him, and submit to Him. And listen, if there's that person that would choose to live that way, to have a legacy for the future, listen, there's a day in the resurrection where there's going to be this huge family reunion and there's going to be people that you've never met, people that aren't even born yet. And they're going to look back to your life. They're going to look back over your life, a sinner who decided to trust Jesus, to submit to Jesus, to serve him, and to live for the future and change their legacy and that decision is going to make amazing results for generations to come. Listen, you have to ask yourself that question. Am I going to live for today or am I going to live for the future? What is your legacy going to be? Haman chose to live for today. And Haman's legacy is his sons are killed in the same way that he is. story continues in verse 11. This is where things get a little bit difficult. In fact, this chapter 9 of Esther is probably one of the more controversial and painful and complicated sections throughout the entire Bible. In fact, as you, as you go through uh, commentaries in the book of Esther, there's a lot of people that skip this chapter altogether. It's difficult. It's hard. Because it says in, in verse 12, it says that King Xerxes, he hears about what's happening. He's here, he hears that there's 500 people killed in this city. And he's such a sociopath, like he's not even distressed about that. He's not even concerned about it. He's like, whoa, there's 500 people. Good job, guys. What's going on in the rest of the kingdom? And he says, hey, Esther, what is your wish? Whatever you wish, it'll be granted. Esther, what is your further request? It will be fulfilled. And here's where it gets a little awkward. Verse 13, Esther requests that the bloodshed from that single day be extended to a second day. That there are some enemies of God's people on the outskirts of the city, and she wants permission to carry this on for a second day. And she also requests that Haman's sons, who are already killed, would be impaled on those gallows right next to where Haman was killed. Like, how many of you read the kid's storybook how many of you saw that in the kid's storybook? Like, I think, like, Veggie Tales. Like, like you've, got, you've got Esther with her tiara and her smile next to the ten guys she just had put on a pole. You don't see that. There's no flannel graph of that. Like, this is one of those things that's it's very difficult. And, and one of the reasons why Esther becomes such a difficult book is because the author doesn't give us any commentary. The author doesn't say what Esther did was good or what Esther did was bad. It's left open for us. There's no angels rejoicing that she obeyed. There's no God weeping that she disobeyed. We don't know. By all appearances, you can look at this and say, man, maybe the power of being the queen has gone to her head. Maybe, I mean, all appearances, she did something that doesn't look very good. 
we don't know. There's something I want to point out that perhaps maybe you noticed. That three times in this text, in the midst of the chaos, and the midst of all this conflict, and if you look back, you could underline these in verses 10, verses 15, and verses 16. Three times it says that the Jews did not touch the plunder. Three times it says this. And you begin to think, well, well, wait a second. I, I remember the decree that Haman made. Haman said, hey, on this day, you can kill the Jews and you can plunder, which means you can take all their stuff. So you kill me, you can come and get a 1997 Chevy Suburban with 185,000 miles on it. It's yours. You're welcome to it. Right? That's what happened. And when Mordecai had his counter decree, Mordecai said, hey, you Jews, you can defend yourselves and you can plunder from those who try and attack you. So you can go and take their stuff. I've seen some of your trucks. Like, I'm coming for you, right? But when you read this story, they didn't take any of that stuff. They didn't plunder. They did not touch the plunder. Why not? Why didn't they? Again, we can't be certain. There's many commentators that believe that perhaps Esther is seeking to fulfill something that God had called King Saul to do and all the way back in 1 Samuel. Again, this is where we have to remember a little bit of the background on the story. Remember when we're introduced to Haman. We're introduced to Haman all the way back in, in, in chapter 2. It was Haman the Haggagite, who's a descendant of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were introduced to in Exodus chapter 17, where Moses, uh, remember your biblical history, Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. They're on their way, they're marching, and the Amalekites come up from behind, and they try and attack God's people. They attack Israel, and they're trying to plunder, they're trying to take their stuff. And so Israel, Moses leads Israel into war, and they battle with them, and they win, the, they win that victory, they win that war, they win that battle. But from then, that day forward, the Amalekites and God's people became enemies. And there's this constant battle between these two groups of people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God instructed Saul. He said, Saul, I have a job for you to do. You're to go, and you're to go wipe out the Amalekites. All of them. Destroy them all. And don't take any of their stuff. They try to take it from us. Don't take any of it. You just destroy it all. And we'll be done with them. And what does Saul do? Saul, well, I, I guess I'll let some of them live. I'll, get, I'll let the king live. And, you know, all that stuff, I mean, it'd be horrible for me to torch that 1998 Chevy Suburban. Like, I'll just take that Suburban for me, and, and I'll tithe on it, right? You know, I'll, I'll take some of the good stuff, and, and you know, God, God will understand. And, and, he, and he has this partial obedience, which is still disobedience. And he lets the king live. He plunders out of the best. Listen, if Saul would have obeyed in 1 Samuel 17, 500 years before the story of Esther, if Saul would have obeyed, you realize Haman doesn't exist? If Saul would have obeyed, then the people of God wouldn't be facing this turmoil. They wouldn't be facing this death sentence. They wouldn't have this uncertainty. They wouldn't have to fight for their lives if Saul would have obeyed. And there's many people that believe whether she's right or wrong, that Esther is trying, as she identifies with God's people, she sees herself in that battle. God's people versus their enemies. And she, people see her stepping into that role, trying to do what Saul failed to do, 
by exacting justice on God's enemies. This is a holy war. She's trying to do what Saul failed to do. Listen, regardless of how you view what Esther did, whether she was right or wrong, you can talk about that in your life groups this week. You can debate that with your spouse. Regardless of whether she was right or wrong, we need to recognize that God's people are locked in a deadly and a sacred conflict. That there's this conflict that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden between Satan and God, between God's people and Satan's. And that battle rages on today. But today it looks a little different. Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. See, the Christian life is a war. But our conflict, our war is not waged like Esther waged her war. Our conflict is waged in light of Jesus' finished victory. Or we have the benefit to know how this story ends. Though we're fighting this battle day by day, we're fighting against sin, we're fighting against Satan, we're fighting against, uh, we have this conflict with the world who has a worldview that rejects our God, that rejects his existence, that, that, that deny all of his claims. And listen, in the great reversal, that's where we live. We live on the opposite side of the cross, the opposite side of the empty grave. Jesus has already won the war. He's already won the battle. And so as we fight against evil and Satan and, and enemies today, listen, we fight in light of the fact that we know that we win in the end. We know how the story ends. And so we can fight with confidence. We can fight with confidence waiting on the day that Jesus returns and finishes things once and for all. When there's no more battle. They go and they fight kill all these people and this is where i come to my favorite part of the story time to celebrate see something i want you to understand is when we celebrate celebrating is actually a spiritual thing it's a it's a religious thing because at the end of a long hard day think of what all these people have experienced they had this great reversal where the day started with the enemies of God's people hoping to gain mastery. And this great reversal where God gave them mastery over their enemies. Verse 18 says the people rested. And that day of rest became a day of feasting and rejoicing. That sounds like a good day, does it not? Feasting and rejoicing, right? And so Mordecai looks at this and Mordecai says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write a new decree. And we're going to tell all the Jews everywhere to observe this new holiday. Remember, not a holiday, a holy day. A day that is set apart. A day called Purim. It comes from the word pur, which points to the day that, that Haman, he cast lots, cast dice, trying to pick the day that the, uh, uh, intended for disaster. And they would celebrate Purim as a way to remember that God reversed that circumstance. That God reversed that story. And so the Feast of Purim really has two goals, okay? Verse 22, that they are to remember what God has done for them. That they remember, remember the remarkable providence of God. They remember the fact that God saved and intervened in their situation. They're to remember the gift that God gave them when he gave them relief from their enemies. They're to look back, hey, remember what God did for you. Remember that the enemy sought to have mastery over you, but God in his great reversal gave you mastery over them. 
The first thing they're to do is remember. The second thing they're to do is rejoice. And I love verse 22. It says that their sorrow turned to rejoicing and their mourning turned to a holiday. Listen, isn't that what God does? And we used to sing this song here at church called Restoration. And I love that song because there's this lyric that comes straight out of Psalm chapter 30 that says God takes our mourning and turns it into dancing. That God takes our weeping and turns it into laughing. That God takes our sadness and turns it into joy. Isn't that what God does? He takes the brokenness of life and turns it to something beautiful. He makes something beautiful out of it. So Mordecai tells all of the Jews, hey, this is a new holiday. You're to celebrate and observe the Feast of Purim so that you would remember and rejoice in what God has done for you. And why does it matter? Why is he telling them to do that? Because Israel is going to be a shadow of its former glory. Israel used to be a great nation, and now they're still struggling. In fact, there's going to have 400 years of silence where there's no going to be no prophets. God's not going to speak to them. 400 years of silence. And this annual holiday, this observance of Purim, this set-apart day to remember and rejoice, to celebrate the God of great reversals, this was something to encourage them to unite the people together, to sustain them through the long years of difficulty that lay ahead of them. In fact, when you look at the whole book of, uh, of, of Esther, the whole book of Esther, the purpose of the book of Esther is to help us understand the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, that God is working in our lives and in our world even when we don't see it. That God's not mentioned, but God is written on every page of this book, Right? And perhaps, perhaps this is the application of the entire book. The guy would want to teach us as God's people that we would remember and rejoice for what God has done in our lives. That that would be a critical part of our Christian faith. You understand that? That for us, for our Christian faith, us remembering and rejoicing in what God has done for us is so critical to our Christian faith. In fact, uh, last week or so, I put on uh, social media. We put on social media on our Facebook page. We said, why do you go to church? And it was great. We got lots of great answers. You know, my wife makes me go to church. My mom makes me go to church. I go to church to hear the great jokes from the pastor. I go to church because I'm looking for a spouse. Listen, there are worse places for you to look for a spouse at. Like, good job. Clap on that. Listen, one of the reasons why we gather as a church is so that we can remember what Christ has done for us. That we can remember when death was undone, when the stone was rolled away, when life and immortality were brought into light through the resurrection of Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we gather. So we can remember all that God has done for us. And we gather to remind it of what he's done and to celebrate that we are made right, that we are forgiven by him, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so when we gather on Sunday morning, we intentionally gather with a purpose to remember and to rejoice. We rejoice that the victory is already won. 
We rejoice that, that Romans 16, 20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. We gather to remember and rejoice the victory at the cross and the victory because of the empty tomb. That is why we are gathered here today. That is why we sing music. That is why we turn the volume up. That is why we praise our hand, lift our hands. That is why we clap our hands. It's because we want to remember and rejoice and celebrate what God has done for us. That we would rejoice so that this week, the days ahead of us, when we walk back to our difficult job and we walk back to the difficult relationships, we walk back to, to waking up and, and, and pulling a hamstring when we go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, when we have all these difficulties and all these hardships, that we would be encouraged not to give up. That we would keep fighting sin. That we would keep loving even when we weren't loved back. That we would keep praying. That we would keep following Jesus. Because we know, we were reminded that, that, that sin has been defeated. That Satan has been defeated. And unbelief will not win. No matter how hard life gets, we would be reminded and remember. Christ wins in the end. And we as God's people, we win as well. Think about this. Think about your life. Think about this sermon series. Think about further than that. Like, how has God showed up in your life? What are the things that God has done in your life? How has he saved you? What sin have you been able to overcome? Think about your spouse. You know how easy it is for us to take our spouse for granted? Think about how you used to long for a spouse and God gave it to you. Think about maybe you're like Abraham and Sarah and you pleaded with God for years, God give us a child. Think about the child that God gave you or the five children that God gave you. Think about the trouble that you found yourself in and God met you there and God delivered you through that trouble. Think about the loneliness you felt, the darkness of your soul. And Jesus showed up to sit next to you so you would know you're not alone. Think about how you were lost in sin, focused on pleasing yourself, on living for today, and how you were bound for hell. And think about on that single day when God became real, when his love took root in your heart and you became a child of God and you found peace and you found freedom, think back, every one of you, think back to, to what has God done in my life. Think about an instance. Think about something that he has done because this is what Esther is telling us to do. Remember, remember what God has done. Remember how he showed up. Remember that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who showed up then is the same God who could show up today. That that God can do more in a single day than you and I could ever do in our entire lifetime. And Esther's telling us, remember, remember. And then when you remember, rejoice. Rejoice, sing loudly. Like, eat good food. There's great tacos across the street at Five Salsas. There's good food there. Like, 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 like rejoice. Shed good tears. Hug people around you. Clap. Jump on your feet. Rejoice. That is what we do as a church. We remember what God has done for us and we rejoice in it. 
You know what we're so close to right now? Next week is Easter. You know how excited I am? And I'll tell you what, it's amazing how closely Easter fits into the story of Esther. Because in Esther, all that death has to come before the celebration, right? You have to have all those people die, and then there's a celebration. Easter's the same thing. In fact, this Friday is a church. We're going to gather together and observe Good Friday. Be reminded that when Jesus went to the cross, and he took your sin upon himself, he took your junk, he paid the penalty that you and I deserved. We're going to remember that. We're going to reflect on that. Of all that Christ did for us, of giving his life for us. You know what we're going to do Sunday? We're going to come back into this place, and we are going to celebrate it's like a regular Sunday on steroids. It's going to be great. That, that we would look at Easter, we would look at that empty grave, and that we would allow God to reignite the flames of rejoicing in our heart because the tomb is empty. Because we have victory. Because Jesus walked out of that grave. The worst Satan could throw at him. Jesus conquered and defeated. And we're going to celebrate the fact that you don't have to have all the answers. Your life doesn't have to be perfect. You can still have difficulty because on that day, on that single day when that tomb was empty, God did more in raising Jesus from the dead than religion could ever do. That's the day that the light broke through. Darkness. The day that God did his greatest reversal. That instead of death and hell that we deserve, that we would receive his love become adopted as a sons and daughters. It's a family of God. And I'll tell you what, next Sunday, I hope you'll do those things. I hope you prepare some good food, some of those deviled eggs. Like, I don't know why you eat deviled eggs on Easter, but I, that's the one day I get them, and I'm going to eat the whole tray myself. I love them puppies. I hope next Sunday you're going to have some good food, some chocolate bunnies. None of those peeps, that's weird. I hope next Sunday you've got a good food prepared. I hope that you will bring someone with you to say, let's go to church and let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the day that God did his greatest reversal. Let's celebrate and let's lift our hands and let's clap our hands and let's rejoice because the tomb is empty. I'm out of time. Chapter 10. Let me just tell you what chapter 10 says. Chapter 10, it gives a little bit and says there, the account of Mordecai. The rest of how he served as a second in command in the, in the kingdom, it's recorded in uh, the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And verse 3, here's the only thing I'd point out from chapter 10. Verse 3, it says that Mordecai was second in rank to the king. He was second in rank to the king. And then it says that he was great among the Jews. Listen, if you and I want to become great, we want to be, become great in this world. It comes from us being sound, found second in rank to the king. That we wouldn't be seeking ourselves first. We wouldn't be seeking to put ourselves on the throne. But we'd let God be on the throne. That we'd be second to him. Allow him to lead. That it's not about us, it's about him and seeking him first. Restoration Church, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate today. We're going to have our own celebration of Purim. I want to invite you to take time to remember. To remember. 
Remember how God has shown up. Remember what God has done in your life. And we're going to have that opportunity to remember. And I hope there's some of those things. I hope there's some happy tears being shed. I hope there's some hugging going on. Because after we remember, we're going to rejoice. We're going to sing. You're going to be invited to clap and dance and celebrate. Because we have a God that is worth celebrating. And we come as a church, we come and we, we, we remember and we rejoice. And it fills up our cup to go back out into the world and remain faithful and be encouraged not to give up. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's celebrate.